Welcome to Chapter 7, Memory. This is Mrs. Roseman. This week, we are studying questions like, what information really sticks with us over time and why? Why, for example, can you remember a day like your um, 16th birthday and what you did on that day, but not necessarily remember what you did three weeks ago today? (laughs) So I invite you to pause the audio and write down everything you did yesterday that did not involve memory. Related, please jot down, would you like to improve your memory? And if so, in what way? Believe it or not, there are very few things we do that do not involve memory. You might have thought of breathing, blinking, certain reflexes, but this is a really tough question to answer. Mostly everything we think, feel, and do involves memory in some form or fashion. How do psychologists define memory? Well, cognitive psychologists do study memory as the persistence of learning over time in your nervous system through encoding, storage, and retrieval. So if you think about it, everything you've done today, from recognized members of your family, speaking a language, navigating to school and to work, savoring past achievements, even feeling guilt and regret, relies on memory. You will use the Atkinson-Schifrin model of memory to describe how memory is formed and contrast sensory, short-term, and long-term memory stores. Okay, I have a couple quick things to share. Let's say that you, like many people, based on my first question, would like to improve your memory or your recall for certain key terms, even say for this introductory psychology course. What can you do? Well, you can actually use the science of memory to your advantage. There are two different types of rehearsal or purposeful repetition that people use to commit information to memory. Let's take an everyday example. Let's say that you're working in a new position in a new job and you need to learn some new names. You meet someone and you simply repeat their name to yourself twice. That's helpful. That's called maintenance rehearsal. Let's say you really want to commit that name to memory such that when you see that person again, you will successfully recall and be able to call them by name. So say again, you learn a new name and you actually repeat it again within that conversation and then start connecting that name with an object that helps you recall the name, some kind of mental image. Now you're really practicing elaborative rehearsal. You're not only repeating that name, you're connecting it with other things you already know that are in your long-term memory and increasing your likelihood that you'll be able to successfully call that person by name and recall that information when you see them again. Keep in mind, too, whenever you can make a term self-relevant, even psychology terms, Use that laborative rehearsal, deeper encoding, create that stronger memory, and relate that term to yourself. You are far more likely to be able to remember it long term, say for a final exam. So to wrap up, um, I want to explore some different types of long-term memory.
Here are the two terms, implicit and explicit. It's really helpful to bring up the organizer for long-term memory from the PowerPoint, the active learning PowerPoint, or from the textbook. In the third edition, it's on page 272. So if I were to ask you, what did you eat for dinner last night? How did you celebrate your 16th birthday? You would be able to recall from me a personally experienced episode from your own life. Long-term memories like this that you can consciously state and recall to others are called explicit memories. They require effort. So to get even more specific, you can divide explicit memories into facts and knowledge you have no personal connection with, semantic memory, maybe, for example, um, the words to the Star-Spangled Banner, and then personally experience events from your own life, which are called episodic memories. To form any explicit memory, whether it's semantic or episodic, um, you move from that sensory information, like, like for example, hearing a name, to repeating it to keep it in your short-term storage, to ultimately storing it long-term. And when you recall that explicit memory, even someone's name, it requires effort. Now, there's also another form of memory, uh, long-term memory, implicit memories. These are called non-declarative memory because they do not require conscious effort to recall, and oftentimes they cannot be stated or verbally described. Here's where an example is helpful. Let's take procedural memory. So procedural memory is a form of implicit memory that involves knowing how to do something, like how to type, how to text, how to tie your shoes. When you first learned how to tie your shoes, the motor or procedural memory, right, um, it was initially sensory and then moved to short term and ultimately is stored in long term memory. You do not have to consciously recall uh, a memory to tie your shoes in the moment. It's really overlearned. It's an implicit memory, right? You do it without thinking. Musicians and athletes oftentimes have superior procedural memories associated with their fields of, of expertise, right? Let's take another form of implicit memory. Oftentimes, one-time classical conditioning memories become stored in our implicit long-term storage. So take, for example, if you had a food poisoning incident and you now have a taste aversion, maybe there's something you avoid. For me, it's lima beans. Anyways, things you learn via classical conditioning get stored even after one trial in your long-term um, implicit memory. Really powerful to think about these different long-term forms of memory. So fascinating. This week you get to explore the case study of HM. Um, Henry Mollison really helped us to understand the fact that not only are there different forms of long-term memory storage, but you can essentially injure one form of memory, like in the case of HM, explicit memories. He was no longer able to form new explicit memories, but you can leave other forms of memory like implicit memory, procedural memories, intact. This also has to do with the fact that, for example, explicit memories rely on one brain region, mainly the hippocampus in concert with the frontal cortex, 
whereas forming implicit memories actually relies um, more on the cerebellum and different regions of the hindbrain. This week, enjoy exploring the different ways that misinformation can actually contaminate our memories and exploring Dr. Loftus's eyewitness testimony uh, research in the false memory activity. Thank you.